guess what? It's episode 200 of the SSR podcast. 200. 200. Imagine me throwing confetti and rainbow sprinkles in the air as I record this. For this episode, my guests and I turn our attention to a title written by a YA icon, who I know is beloved by many readers in our listening community. I'm talking about Sarah Dessen and her seventh book, Just Listen. It was published in 2006 and covers an impressive range of weighty topics, everything from assault and trauma to eating disorders and racism. With that in mind, I encourage you to listen with care, but I also want to assure you that my guests and I did our best to handle these conversations with as much finesse and sensitivity as Sarah Dessen herself. On this episode, we talk quite a bit about how she manages to pull all of this off so beautifully. You will also hear us talk today about main character Annabelle's experiences in the modeling industry, complicated family dynamics, our pet peeves about reviews and the unfair expectations that readers can place on books, the lack of attention paid to Annabelle's love interest, Owen, anger, power imbalances in relationships, and the power of knowing that you are not alone. We get into the details of Just Listen's plot too. So even if you're not familiar with the book, you shouldn't have any problem keeping up. This book was ahead of its time in so many ways. You know we needed a major superstar as a guest for episode 200. And a major superstar is exactly who we've got. Leah Johnson is an eternal Midwesterner and author of award-winning books for children and young adults. Her best-selling debut YA novel, You Should See Me in a Crown, was a Stonewall honor book, the inaugural Reese's Book Club YA pick, and named Best Book of the Year by Amazon, Kirkus, Marie Claire, Publishers Weekly, and New York Public Library. In 2021, Time named You Should See Me in a Crown as one of the 100 best young adult books of all time. Yes, you heard me right, of all time. Leah's essays and cultural criticism can be found in Teen Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and Cosmopolitan, among others. She is currently featured in an anthology called Out There, and her debut middle grade novel, Ellie Engel Saves Herself, is forthcoming from Disney Hyperion in 2023. Learn more about Leah's work at www.byleahjohnson.com, and if you're not already, be sure you're following her on social media at byleahjohnson. Leah, I know I speak on behalf of the entire SSR community when I say that I appreciate you taking the time to share your love for Sarah Dessen with us on today's episode. Celebrations for this milestone episode, not to mention four years of the podcast, will roll on across social media in the coming days, so don't miss out. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club on Facebook. On Wednesday, June 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern, all SSR Patreon supporters are invited to join me for a virtual gathering to mark the moment, and I hope to see you there. You can get involved for as little as $1 per month. And at the five and ten dollar levels, you'll get even more patron exclusives. Later this week, for example, we'll be kicking off a new month of the Patreon SWR, that's Shit We Read Book Club. In July, we are reading The Agathas by Liz Lawson and Kathleen Glasgow. Become a patron at www.patreon.com/ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Today more than ever, I want to give an extra shout out to everyone who has supported the show on Patreon over the last few years. Your contributions and encouragement have helped us hit the 200 episode mark. 
While we're on the subject, I do want to take a minute to say a giant thank you to each and every one of you. Whether you've been following the show from the very beginning or have just found your way into the SSR family, I am thrilled to share this moment with you. Running this podcast for the past four years has been challenging and discouraging at times, but it has been fun and rewarding at every moment too. Connecting with book lovers like you has been the best surprise, and I look forward to reading and reminiscing together for many episodes and years to come. A little bit of housekeeping before we jump into this episode. SSR will be on a brief summer break next week while I gear up for year five of the show. I'll be back on Tuesday, July 12th with a conversation about Summer Sisters by Judy Bloom. In the meantime, make sure you're caught up on our catalog of old episodes. And please consider leaving a rating or review if you feel so inspired. Okay, listeners, let's do this. For the 200th time, let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hofkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Leah. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. It's our 200th episode. I'm so grateful to have you on. I'm a huge fan of yours, and I know many of our listeners are too. Thank you for the round of applause. It's a big day. And we're talking about Sarah Dessen's Just Listen. Just like we have a lot of fans of yours in our community, we have a lot of fans of Sarah Dessen's in our community. And this conversation has been a long time coming, but if I'm not mistaken, I saw you tweet a while back that you were revisiting some YA from like the early to mid aughts. And I think Sarah Dessen was on that list. And I had been wanting to have you on the podcast for a long time. And once I saw that, I was like, great, this is my in, perfect, I'm going to reach out. Can you share with us a little bit more about that experience? Like what inspired you to do it? And if there are any kind of broader observations that you made from that? For sure. You know, I was considering writing what is now a historical novel. Like I wanted to set a book in the early aughts. And I was like, let me just revisit some of my favorites from that era to sort of ground myself in the voice and the tone. And also, I think I've forgotten a lot of the relics of that era, like how important the mall was yes. to us in like 2003. <laughs> I just like, we love the mall. Like, yeah. And you know, it's like that Taylor Swift lyric where it's like, um, we were like the, you were like the inter, the mall before the internet. There was only one place to be. Yeah. It was very much giving that energy. But of course I revisited um, Meg Cabot, who was and continues to be a massive specter in my literary universe. And so I read the book uh, Teen Idol, which is about like a star who like hot heartthrob who goes back to high school to like research for a role. I was like, I can't believe that we... It was so simple. The book was so simple. I feel yeah. like now, I mean, Sarah Dessen is a diversion from this, but contemporary YA or teen lit in that era was very straightforward. It was like, okay, this is the plot. 
you're going to buy into it. You're going to suspend so much belief. And that's just that on that. And we loved it. We ate it up. Some Meg Cabot. I'm turning around because I'm trying to find, I have like my stack of 2000s novels. I also went back to Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging, which I think came out in the late 90s. Not Classic. Classic. Sloppy First, this series Ugh. by Megan McCafferty. Ugh. Come on. Like, it was just... So good. Banger after banger, hit after hit. What an era it was. And so, of course, like, I returned to Sarah Dessen as well, who, you know, it's worth noting, I reread this lullaby probably once or twice a year, at least in part, you know, skip around. Because I, I love that book so much. I think, you know, say what you will about the way YA has evolved over time. But Sarah Dessen is one just constant that for me, like, she, does, she doesn't miss. She can't miss. And I don't know, maybe she does. But in my mind, she, she can't. It's not possible. <laughs> okay, so you're a Sarah Dessen fan and you were growing up, I assume? Yeah, 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 yeah. Me and Sarah Dessen... We go way back. And this lullaby was your favorite always. Yeah, yeah. That's like, to me, that's that's a career high. You know, that is a career best performance from her. I'm trying to think. I mean, do I own every single Sarah Dessen novel? Yes, I do. And there have been a couple that like I read and just never came back to because they're a little hard to read. Like Dreamland, for instance. Like that's a, that's a really heavy book. But in general... I've loved her. I discovered her in like sixth or seventh grade or something and just never looked back. Okay, so listeners, I did not know that we have a Sarah Dessen super fan in our midst. <laughs> I had no idea. That's like the beauty of this process of the, of how we set all this up is that like I sent some book suggestions. We went back and forth a little bit. This is where we landed. But I don't know until like this very moment why a guest has selected the book that they chose. So wow. Okay. I'm just, I'm, I'm absorbing all this information. I was not a massive Sarah Dessen fan. I actually didn't come to her until like, I think a little later than most. I read How to Deal when I was, I guess, in high school because I loved Mandy Moore and I loved the movie. Mm -hmm. And then I read The Truth About Forever in college. But those were the only two that I had any exposure to until I started the podcast. And since starting the podcast, I've also read This Lullaby, Keeping the Moon. We did an episode about The Truth About Forever not too long ago, which was my favorite to that point. And now, of course, Just Listen. I knew nothing about Just Listen. What do you remember about this one from when you read it growing up? Or, or have you come back to it again since then? I have. I haven't reread it in full since probably the first time I read it. But it's another one of those books that I've read in chunks and chapters just to sort of like get a sense of how Sarah Dessen like navigates different tools, craft tools in her writing. But I remembered that Owen, the love interest, was like a Big in my mind, he was this big hulking brute guy, like super into weird music, like very rage filled, like it's very much giving white boy rage, like mm -hmm. incel. And I remembered that about him because Owen is actually one of my least favorite of the like Sarah Dessen love interest because like I personally had no investment in him as a like a a hero, and so. That's I remembered that. And I also remembered Annabelle was like very demure and was one of three girls and all of them sort of like were carrying their own baggage. So, yeah, a lot of what I remembered of the plot was just very like character based. 
Okay. Well, I, I echo a lot of what you had to say, and I'm sure we'll get into it more over the course of the next hour or so. But I wanted to start us off by reading a little bit from an interview with Sarah Dessen about what inspired Just Listen. This was, I believe, her seventh published novel. Conveniently for our kind of chronology of podcast episodes, it was the follow-up to The Truth About Forever, which was the last Sarah Dessen book that we covered on the show. And she said in an interview, I was really intrigued with the idea of a appearances and the assumptions we make based on them. When I was in high school, I was always really envious of those girls who seemed to have everything. The perfect hair, perfect clothes, perfect boyfriend, perfect life. It wasn't until I was older that I realized that nobody's life is perfect and that those girls probably had a lot of the same problems I did. Just before I wrote Just Listen, I was doing a program at a school and while I was waiting, I flipped through this yearbook that had been left out on a table nearby. I found this picture in the senior page section of these three beautiful girls, obviously sisters, posing by a swimming pool. And even then at 34, I was like, wow, their lives must be just great, which kind of horrified me. It was like I hadn't learned anything. The book sort of began right there. And I I love that origin story that she was both inspired kind of on a meta level by this question of appearances and then more micro, like looking at a yearbook, even as an adult woman and having a reaction to what she saw there. I also think it's worth noting that she, she goes on to talk in the interview about how she was really nervous to follow up to the truth about forever because it had been so successful. And so she was feeling a lot of pressure about like what she was going to write next. And she actually almost put Just Listen away. She talks about how... It took her a really long time to write it. She went back and forth with it several times, and it almost was shoved in a drawer. Putting on your author hat, Leah, what is your reaction to all of that? I think that all of us are always like one step away from genius. You know what I mean? Like, there's always a moment in a manuscript for me where I'm like, this isn't the book. This isn't the book. This isn't the time. This isn't the the place in my in my catalog that it needs to fit in and I will like want to abandon it. And then once you push past that, once you get right to the other side of it, it's like, Oh, I see now what I was afraid of as a writer. Cause this is actually the thing. What I'm intimidated by is not that it's not the right story, but that I can't do it. And when you realize you can, when you realize you have that capacity, then it's like, now we're on to something. Now we're really cooking. So yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that, but I am like horrified because if every one of my like every one of my favorite writers decided at one point in their career, like, what if I like, what if Emily Danforth had said, mm-hmm, I'm not really feeling miseducation of Cameron Post. Like, let me put that away. Yeah. What would that have done to my life? Like, it's not about me, but it is about me. So like, what would that have done to me personally? Right. A lot of damage, I'll tell you that, which is why I'm always like, you just got to keep going. Like, even if you're like unsure about it, I think you should power through. Well, and she did. And it gave us just listen. And I think we should start by talking a little bit more about Annabelle, because I have to tell you, Leah, Based on my research, Annabelle is controversial in the universe, even of Sarah Dessen fans. People have mixed feelings about her. Annabelle is heading into her junior year of high school. She's really nervous about some social things that are going on. We don't, of course, learn the full extent of those until later on in the book, although I'm sure we'll talk about them shortly. She knows that she's going back to school without a lot of friends on her side. She's spent most of the summer alone. She has a lot going on at home with her family. And over the course of the book, we kind of watch her embrace things like anger and 
disagreeing with people and confrontation. But a lot of the the blogs and the reviews that I read about Just Listen talk about Annabelle as, as somebody who is not as assertive as, as we would like her to be. And I think that's true of a lot of characters. So I'm not quite sure what it is about Annabelle that seems to have irked a lot of readers and reviewers. Like people really seem to dislike her, even if they liked the book. What's your take on that? You know, what I think is so strange about that reception to Annabelle as a character is that she, to me, doesn't feel all that different from most Sarah Dessen protagonists. All of them are sort of like cerebral and internal and and angsty, but are fighting to like upkeep this sort of perfect appearance to the outside. Like, I thought it was interesting that she considered this to be a book where she had started to explore the contradiction between what we present to the world and what we are inside. Because I was like, Sarah, that's literally, that's all of your books. I'm like looking through this whole thing. Okay. So the truth about forever, right? People love that book. Macy. I think Macy is the main character in that book. Macy. Macy's whole shtick, right? Is that she is with this super smart dude at the beginning of the book. And he sort of like, he sort of like overpowers her in all these scenarios and like, wants her to be all these different things that she's not and then her dad has recently passed away but she doesn't want to talk about like all the ways that she's hurt by her dad's passing and all that that's Annabelle that's the same it's the same character just in a a different costume like she's the same person so I I find it really I find it really interesting that people didn't like her but you know what I think the problem is people hate women that's really the issue (laughs) people hate women it is (laughs) And like, I think everything comes down to misogyny, even like internalized misogyny. Yeah, I have to agree with you because I, I too, when I was reading these reviews, I was like, I don't, I don't get it. And even as somebody who's not like a, a massive Sarah Dustin super fan, who's here, like defending all of the main characters of her books, I'm like, I, I don't want to, I don't think that Annabelle deserves to be defended any less than the other main characters in her backlist. It, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I found one review and, and I'll link everything that I found in the show notes listeners as always, but I found one review that was really particularly rude that like characterizes this book as the equivalent of like an angsty 13 year old teenager who is like chewing her gum loudly and rolling her eyes. And I'm like, isn't that kind of what a lot of pop culture about teens is like that's what being a teenager is about it's a time when you are like testing the limits and learning to speak up for yourself and like doing what you want and sometimes getting consequences from that so i it was interesting to me that like this book in particular seems to have not sat right with readers i will say that if there's one little thing throughout sarah dessen's catalog that i have not loved and i did see it in this book a little bit was like I I see a lot of these main characters, Annabelle being one of them, kind of like defining themselves based on the way that the boys and men in their lives define them. And I do think that that does go back to like the way a lot of stories are written. So it's not just a Sarah Dessen thing, but I do just hate to see that. Like, I don't mind that Annabelle is not super assertive because I'm not always super assertive in my life. And I, I hate when readers and consumers of pop culture in general, like project their own feelings about themselves onto fictional characters. But if there was one thing that made me sad about Annabelle, just as it makes me sad about other characters, it's the fact that like, I feel like she is kind of waiting around for Owen to like, teach her how to be herself. And that bums me out. 
For sure. For sure. I think, so there's like, oh, you just said so much that I want to dig into. I, I want to start by saying, I don't know what people expect from a novel. I really don't. Sometimes like I'll read a review and I'll be like, well, what did you want the writer to do here? <laughs> like in this book, for instance, like the whole, the arc of Annabelle's character is that she starts out as somebody who has a hard time being assertive, but also being completely honest because honesty is a thing that in her family has not always resulted in positive outcomes. Right. And so it's all about keeping things quiet and keeping things internal and like trying to present a perfect image to the world. So she has to start there. So by the end of the novel, the moment when, well, I know it's no spoilers, but like the moment when she does feel empowered to speak up about what's happened to her. And she does, you know, finally talk to this other girl who's also been assaulted by this guy. That's supposed to be a hugely impactful moment because we spent the entire book living inside the head of this girl who did not think that she had the strength or the fortitude to do that. Like that to me is like, perfect. That's a story, Sarah. Thank you. Like that's what it's supposed to feel like when you go through a story with somebody. And also like, what does it mean to be a teenage girl? It means that sometimes you can't or don't want to outwardly express all the myriad of emotions that are like bubbling up inside of you. So, I mean, look, Am I a Sarah Dessen super fan? Yes. But even I can identify that like she does fall short in some of her books and in some different ways. But like that critique in particular, absolutely not. I think really one of the problems too is that like uh, people don't love Owen. And I think if it was like uh, like Dexter, for instance, in This Lullaby, <laughs> Dexter is such a relentlessly lovable character that it's difficult not to like root for that romance you know that relationship to yeah work but in this one it's kind of like I don't really love Owen so like if you don't love uh Annabelle you're you're pretty much tapped out from the first couple of chapters yeah and I I, to your point about like what do people expect from a novel that's why I even as somebody who like has this podcast and has a bookstagram, like I've never gotten into writing book reviews because I think so often like a, a book review comes down to like, how does this book stand up to your expectations of it when like an author isn't responsible for fulfilling your expectations of a book that you've never read before and have no personal stake in? Like, I guess I've always been the kind of reader that just like takes a book for what it is. And obviously I have to be a little bit more critical on the podcast, which I think comes more from like the years between when a lot of these books were published and now, like what have we learned that contributes to this conversation in a different Mm -hmm. way? What other voices have we heard? How can we fill in some of the gaps? But yeah, some of these reviews, I'm like, I don't understand. Like, so you read the back of the book and that makes you feel qualified to give this author like a full breakdown of whether or not he, she, or they succeeded. And I'm sure as, as an author yourself, Leah, like you could get even more fired up about this. I just, I just don't quite get it. Yeah. It's really tough. It's tough for me as a fan of other writers to like read reviews of their work that are like particularly snarky or not very generous. You know, like I think that's part of the reading process too is like, I try to be more generous to writers now probably than, you know, as I write, because I'm like, 
I know how difficult it is to do this, you know, and I know how hard it is, especially for somebody who was seven books deep, you know, taking this back to Sarah Desmond. Like, you're at a point in your career where it's like, okay, I don't want to do the same thing over and over again. But also I want my work to be familiar to the readers who are like coming back because they expect a certain thing from me. But I also am trying to accomplish this on a craft level and this on a commercial level. And so it's like, even if I don't love a story that an author has put out, I try to read as like kindly as I can now, because I'm like, I know, I know, I get it. It is hard once you get to that side of things but somebody's got to do the work of critical reviews it's not me it's not gonna be me but somebody's got to do it (laughs) yes I think that uh, that all makes a lot of sense to me from a writer's perspective but let's get back to Annabelle and Annabelle is facing a lot of different challenges in this book I think Sarah Dessen has taken on so much in this novel, it's a big book. I think it's the longest book of hers that I've read so far. And she needed all those pages to dive into the material that she covers. In this book, we have Annabelle addressing some really like, for a high schooler, overwhelming social challenges, not quite sure where she fits in at school. She's had multiple friend breakups in the short period of a couple of years. There's a lot going on at home with her sisters. One of her older sisters um, is suffering from an eating disorder and is in recovery from that eating disorder. That illness has caused a big rift between that sister, Whitney, and her other sister, Kirsten, who has kind of stepped back from the family because she doesn't feel like she was heard in the early stages of Whitney's disease. Her parents are experiencing a lot of stress because of this. And then to top it all off, She is living with a really heavy traumatic secret, which is that she was raped over the summer. And and that assault was actually at the heart of the biggest friend breakup, which was with her friend, Sophie, who I just need to say up front is a terrible human being. And I would also friend break up with her. Yes, we hate her. I hate Sophie. I think we can all agree on that. (laughs) The hashtag I hate Sophie gang. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, let's make sure. So Leah, there's a lot going on. Like, Where do you want to start? Where should we go first? Which of Annabelle's challenges should we get into? So I feel like let's start with the modeling. Let's start with the model. Okay. Yeah. Because that is Yeah, she's a model. I missed that. Yeah. 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 So Annabelle is a model. She does this, she does a lot of like local campaigns and stuff. And that's part of like that's the actual like that's the center of like a lot of conflict within the family because all three of her all three of the kids, all three of the girls have been models at one point or another. And all of them sort of took to that path a little differently. Like some of them were, one of them was like really great at it and very charismatic, but quit. And the other one obviously like really suffered with like some body image things and is still reckoning with that. And then there's Annabelle who doesn't want to do it at all, but as the youngest, like feels this obligation to continue to do it because her mom really, really, loves it. Like the mom is living vicariously through her at this point. And I think that like using that as a jumping off point to talk about like the ways that women's bodies, especially young women's bodies are commoditized and like the pressure that not only comes along with appearances, but also like the pressure of upholding upholding this thing for your family. Like nobody else can do it. So I have to do it. I think that's like that is a really strong starting point for a, a book. And so like whether Sarah doesn't have like explored like all these other elements or not, I think that alone could have been 
rich with enough content to get us through the rest of the book. But she was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to give you eight different very special episodes in one novel. Yeah, I actually love that <laughs> that comparison. Like, it does feel like eight episodes of an HBO miniseries mm-hmm. about teenagers in the yeah. mid-aughts. And yeah, the first episode, like, we open on a really cute high school junior posing for a local TV commercial. And she, like, looks easy, breezy, beautiful. But underneath, like, we find out later on that she doesn't actually want to do this. Yeah, Leah's doing some really sassy poses. <laughs> I agree. I think that's exactly what, what Annabelle was doing. And it obviously, like, as you said, Leah is a jumping off point for a lot of parts of the story. But it also is, like, a very real, tangible example of this whole notion of, like, appearances versus reality, perception versus reality, what we project as our image versus what we're feeling inside. And the way that Annabelle comes off to the people who watch the commercials that she's in or see the ads that she's in is is much different than the way that she feels inside. And we actually open on her kind of reflecting on that, looking at this TV commercial she did for a local department store. And the whole premise of the commercial is that like, this is the girl who has everything and she's going back to school and she's going to take over the school this year. And she is at the same time preparing to actually go to school and she feels as though her life has fallen apart. And I think the modeling industry in general is so complicated and complex and like having never been a model, I know it's shocking everybody. Uh, I've never been a model, so I can't speak firsthand to the challenges therein, but I understand that it can be very difficult and stressful. So I agree, like even if she'd only made this a book about a family of teenage girls who had been in and out of the modeling world, there would have been a lot for her to work with. Yeah, yeah. And you know, like the other thing too about this, like, um, about this modeling situation, especially with that commercial at the beginning of the book, is that, like, Annabelle is also being bullied because of the modeling thing. Like, it's not, like, a huge aspect of the story, but it is, like, she'll walk down the hallway or something and people will be behind her, like, oh, here comes the girl who has everything! And it's, like, and as, like, you know, thinking in terms of, like, a 16-year-old girl, I'm, like, that is so mortifying. That would be mortifying. I would, that's the kind of, like, yeah, I'm going to eat lunch in the bathroom stall every day because I don't, I just, I couldn't imagine like having to walk into a cafeteria and be, you know, fall prey to that. Especially considering in this book, like Sophie, the worst was like her insulation from all sorts of like, you know, social ills for the past couple of years, because she was so like, people were afraid of her. And so when Annabelle and Sophie are no longer friends, then Annabelle is not shielded by that and has to like confront like, wow, I was a bystander to so much like violence over the past couple of years. And now that I am on the receiving end of that, it's like tenfold. It's like even worse. Yeah, because the tables have really turned at the beginning of the book. Annabelle's best friend is Clark, which like, I love that name, by the way, Me too. Like, never read a, a girl character named Clark. Super cool. And Sophie turns Annabelle against Clark, bullies Clark. And ultimately, Annabelle ends up kind of having the same experience that Clark did at Sophie's hands. But yeah, the modeling, it's like one of those things. And I think a lot of people can relate to this. It's like, it's one of those things that your mom thinks is really cool and will make you really popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's actually not. And it's going to make you super weird. There's one point in the book where where Annabelle is reflecting on the fact that early in her life, 
what had drawn people to her socially, um, it was her sisters because her sisters were popular and pretty and generally well-liked and then the modeling. And so maybe when she was younger, the modeling did make her cool. Then her sisters graduated. The teenagers around her got a little mean and started teasing her about the modeling, but she had Sophie and Sophie became her social currency. And then as soon as Sophie turned against her, it was all over. And so I, I do think like the modeling became just this kind of a heavy backpack that she was wearing, mm -hmm. like a thing that she had to do that was solely for the purpose of like fulfilling her mom's dream. Everybody walks on eggshells around the mom. It seems as though her mom has some undiagnosed depression or untreated depression. And so the daughters are like very aware that if they don't see their mom happy, they're going to see her sad. And that's a really horrible thing for them to witness. And, and Annabelle, as the only daughter left at home, presumably until Whitney has to come back, she feels like it's up to her to to avoid her mom's depression, which is like way more than any teenager or kid should have to shoulder. But so many kids and teenagers do shoulder that and much worse. Right, right. You know, it's like, I can't remember what book, what year this book came out, like 2003, maybe 2004-ish. I think 2004, 2006, actually. Whoa, okay, I'm way off. Okay, so this yeah. book came out in 2006. I was in sixth grade. So we were still at the beginning of the way a lot of these conversations would play out in the zeitgeist, if you will. And so I have to give, I have to give credit to Sarah Dessen. Why do I say her full name every single time I address her? I could just call her Sarah. It's a respect thing, I it's... think, because you are so in awe of her that it's like, but see, I have gone the other way where like when we talk about Judy Bloom, I talk about Judy Bloom so much on this podcast that I'm like, oh, you know, Judy, Judy did this, Judy did that, Jude's my girl, Jude. JJ. So I, I, I think what you're doing is probably the right move, whereas <laughs> I have just like lost all sense of delicacy. Formality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I have to give it to I have to give it to Sarah because she was still very much at the beginning of a lot of these conversations. And so where a lot of writers would stumble, I think, in much more I don't know, much more offensive ways probably or much less delicate ways than I think she handled these subjects as as tastefully as I could expect a writer in like 2005 to handle it, you know, to, you know, if she wrote the book in 05 or 04 and it came out in 06 perhaps. And so like, she's dealing with a lot. We got mental health, we have disordered eating, we have sexual assault, we have fractured family structure, we have social ostr ostracization, we have like, there's so many elements at play here. There's also, and I don't think she ever addresses this explicitly, but there's also a tinge of racism because Clark is Chinese and everybody else in the story is presumably white. And so there's certainly an element of like, okay, Sophie could have targeted Clark because she was a nerd and also because of her allergies, but also because Clark is the easy target because Clark is other. And so there is a lot on the table here that she was sort of trying to navigate. And I think in different hands, this story could have been even more like after school special preachy. But to me, it reads as, as organically as possible, you know, as it could have read in that era, certainly. So I have to give her credit for that. I agree 100%. I don't think it felt preachy at all, mm -hmm. which is hard to do, even yeah. if you're diving into one of these subjects, let alone all of them. 
But the conversation about modeling leads very organically into a conversation about Annabelle's family, which I think we should dive into a little bit more because her sisters play a huge role in the story. Yeah. Kirsten is the oldest sister. She was the sister that was like maybe not quite physically up to the standards of the modeling industry, but she has, as you mentioned earlier, Leah, a lot of charisma. Like she has the right personality. Mm -hmm. I feel like on America's Next Top Model, like – Tyra would really want her to stay because she has a great personality, but (laughs) they'd be like, you're not quite tall enough. Like you're not going to be able to do editorial. You're a commercial girl. Yeah. But, but Kirsten, 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 she's really interested in modeling. So she goes to New York and she like tries it, realizes that it's probably not going to work. And she ends up taking an interest in filmmaking, which I think is pretty cool. And over the course of the book, even though there's not a lot of actual time with Kirsten, we understand that like she's making a short film. That's a tribute to the sisters. And that's pretty cool. Then there's Whitney, who is like hot and editorial. Like Tyra Mm -hmm. would be like, you are so beautiful and you don't know how beautiful you are, but I don't know that you can do a cover girl commercial because you're just not easy breezy beautiful enough. Right, right, right. And so that's kind of the the interesting dynamic between the two sisters. But Whitney like really could be successful as a model if she wanted to be. And if she like maybe perked up a little bit, she just doesn't seem that interested. And Annabelle seems to fall somewhere in the middle. Like she's pretty enough. She's tall enough. She's sociable enough, like all of these things. But the real rift between the sisters happens when Kirsten and Whitney are living together in New York City and Kirsten tries to tell their parents that she is fairly confident that Whitney has an eating disorder and nobody wants to listen to her because her parents are very into keeping up with appearances. They have a glass house, like a literal glass house. And that comes up again and again in the book where Annabelle is like, what people are seeing in front of our glass house is definitely not what actually goes on. A little on the nose. A little on the nose, Sarah Jessen. (laughs) It's okay. We're fine. It's a great visual. Right, 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 right. I like thinking about what that might look like. I don't know how it works architecturally, but I like aesthetically what it does. (laughs) It's not until Annabelle actually sees Whitney on the floor in the middle of a purging episode that her family realizes that like this is serious. And and I'll say as somebody who has, and, and listeners know this, who has had my fair share of disordered eating, body dysmorphia issues over the years, I felt that for the most part, um, it was handled with the right balance of delicacy and it was clinical enough too. Like it didn't, Mm -hmm. it felt true to what it actually means to go through this kind of situation. And it it was a very serious situation so much so that their parents decide that Whitney should stay home and be in treatment. I would say if there was one thing that like I didn't love so much, it was that, you know, in the end when Whitney begins to recover, a lot of it comes down to her interest in food, which I like as an idea, but there's a lot of talk about like, we all needed to be healthy. And like, we all started eating like only vegetables. And yes, are these healthy habits? Absolutely. I think today, maybe an author would approach that a little bit differently, because I think that there is, at least for me, again, as somebody who has like lived this a little bit is like, it's not necessarily the most productive thing to be like, as long as you only eat salads, everything will be okay. Right, right. That for me was the only thing that was a little off-putting. But for the most part, I felt like the depiction was okay, especially by 2006 standards. Yeah, yeah. There certainly is a fixation on food still, which actually, yeah. like, I it doesn't quite pivot us as far away from the, like, conflict as, as I think maybe at the time we thought it did. Yeah. You know, there's this other book and I can't remember who wrote it, but it's called 
perfect by um I don't know. It's like this big, this big. It's like very thin. I got it at the Scholastic Book Fair when okay. I was like fifth grade. And it was about um, a 13 year old girl who struggled with disordered eating. And I just remember like, for some reason, there was like a moment when conversations about anorexia and bulimia became like really big. It was like, it was like every every t- around every corner every book was like trying to deal with it every like tv show degrassi like one tree hill every tv show at the time was also trying to like have their very special episode about it and i think that a lot of times it was like not tastefully done at all and i do appreciate you know that sarah Dessen really does try to cover a lot of ground in this book but also does it in a way that feels like she really cares for her characters. You know what I mean? Like even now I think if she was to rewrite that, like maybe she would approach it differently, but there's obviously a great deal of care that she put into like making these characters feel real, but also making it feel like, okay, they're still flawed. They still have space to grow. They still have space to change. And that to me is like the ultimate act of love as an author is to like give your characters the space to continue to be a little fucked up but also show that like they are evolving they are changing and we're all working to like get them there and so yeah I thought I thought that like uh that portrayal was really interesting a little a little heavy-handed a little fucked up but um definitely like was it was inching towards something yeah well the writing was cool she also got Mm -hmm. into writing as an outlet for her frustration it was something that her therapist encouraged her to do i was like if we could have just pursued the writing that would have been great as a new interest yes i don't need her in the kitchen like no turning vegetables into pasta because as somebody who has done that more than i should have in pursuit of a particular body image i know that that's not helpful so yeah um, we got we got close and i do think that we're getting there you know, we were, yeah, it was one of those we're reaching. Things, like almost, yeah. but not quite. Yeah. We're reaching. Yeah. I mean, and it, and it was cool because all the sisters do come together in the end and, and everybody kind of realizes that they saw certain situations from their unique lenses and it's a nice family story in the end. And I think Annabelle finds her voice in a family of sisters, which is hard, but we, we have to talk about Annabelle's biggest trauma and and the secret that she carries throughout the book. You know, it's interesting. I'm reflecting on the fact, Leah, like I'm looking at our time and I'm thinking about what we've talked about so far. I'm like, I don't know that we're even going to get to Owen much, which is interesting because the other Sarah Dessen books that we've talked about have been so much about the love interest and about the romance. Mm -hmm. And to your point, like, I'm not sure that Owen is the driving force in this book. Like he certainly plays a role in the way Annabelle starts to redefine herself and I'm sure he'll come up in this in this leg of things as we dive into the situation with Will but he is not for me like one of the things that jumps out as the most worthy of our attention. No, and I think part of that too is like okay, if we strip down this story to its barest parts, right? And like we we position it next to you know, The Truth About Forever or This Lullaby, which I use as references because they're the books that I know the best probably from her history. Like, okay, so in This Lullaby, here are your problems. You have Remy, who is very self-assured, is sort of closed off to love, who has like a complex relationship with her mom because of her mom's like history as a, as a, like a romantic person, whatever. And then enter Dexter, chaotic Dexter. 
Boom. That's pretty much the story. Truth about forever. You have Macy. Father has passed away. Breaks up with boyfriend at the beginning of the book. Meets Wes. Very charming. Joins a catering. Blah, blah, blah. Like, boom. That's the story. You know, there aren't that many moving parts. The problem here is that Sarah Dessen has so many moving parts in the story that there doesn't leave that much space on the page for the romance to take precedence. And I actually, you know, I love that, frankly, because it's like, I've heard a lot of interviews where Sarah has said, like, you know, because I'm a woman, they put my books in romance, even though I don't think of my books as romance. Like, she's like, me and John Green write the same books, but John Green is considered like contemporary fiction and I'm considered like chiclet, you know? Yeah. And I think in this book, maybe more than most of her others, it's clear that like she doesn't think of herself or she's not thinking of herself as a romance writer. She's thinking of herself as a contemporary, like literary fiction writer. And I think that works for her in this story. It, would it have worked in the other ones? Certainly not because there weren't another, there weren't enough other elements to like populate the page. I just did a lot of talking. I did a lot of talking in that one, but. I loved it. I I mean, I love it. I love that you know her, her other book so well. And I think your points about why this book feels so different. It all makes a lot of sense to me. I'm trying to think about what this book would have been like if you pulled Owen out. And I do think that, I think Owen serves as like a counterpoint to a lot of the Mm -hmm. other people that. Annabelle has in her life and that everybody else expects her to be tiptoeing around them. Everybody else like has taught her not to get mad. One of the big things with Owen is that he went through anger management. And so now he has tools to manage his anger. Whereas Annabelle is like, oh no, anger is always bad. Like, I don't want to be angry. I don't want other people to be angry. And he's like, you know, it's okay to be angry. You just kind of have to learn how to manage it in a productive, thoughtful way. And he wants her to be honest. So I think he like teaches her some important lessons mm-hmm. but romantically speaking if we pulled him out I'm not sure that the book would have been much different we we have to we have to unfortunately attend to Annabelle's secret of course right right right, right, as right, right, right yeah no I mean I think I'm avoiding it because it is it's always hard to talk about this but um and I'll echo my trigger warning listeners from the introduction to this episode because we are unfortunately now going to talk about sexual assault and the secret that Annabelle has had all summer heading into the school year and we've we've kind of referred to it a little bit but this is where all the pieces come together with Annabelle's mm-hmm. broken friendship with Sophie to kind of make a longish story short-ish Sophie had this boyfriend named Will who was older and Annabelle always was intimidated by him uh when she meets him you can tell he like rubs her the wrong way he is a fucking creep he gets off on like having power over younger girls. He's just like really into a a mismatched power dynamic, which is probably why he like wants to hang out with younger girls. Can I say this too, while we're talking about that, there's like a brief, brief mention of something similar in like the first or second chapter where there's a sophomore in college who is at the shoot for the commercial that Annabelle does like with that department store who asks for her number at the at the end of the shoot she's a sophomore in college or she's a sophomore in high school at the time and he's a sophomore in college sarah is really really subtly like weaving in all these like explorations of like power imbalances within these relationships between men and girls and i think that like that's actually 
one of the like least talked about like elements of the book, but to me, probably the most compelling. I found Will's general like presentation and the way that he relates to Annabelle to be really compelling as well. Mm -hmm. And I, not that I wanted more of Will, but I actually kind of would have loved Sarah Dessen like craft wise to explore that even further and just to get a couple more moments with him because it was clear very quickly that Annabelle is uncomfortable around Will. But she's Sophie's best friend. So she like has to hang around him. And I think most people can relate to that dynamic to some Mm -hmm. extent. Like your best friend is dating somebody that you don't like or is kind of creepy or makes jokes that make you uncomfortable. And maybe because of the power dynamic that you have with that friend, you have to be like, oh, okay, yeah, mm -hmm, I get that joke. But like you don't get the joke. And if you got the joke, you would probably feel really creeped out by it. Right. They are all at a party and will essentially like tricks Annabelle into coming into a room with him and assaults her. It's the first time she's, I think it's the first time she's had a drink, not that it matters, but I think it's Mm -hmm. part of her reflection on the experience of as unfortunately all too often happens when people experience assault, like your alcohol intake and other things like start to cloud your own ability to be like, no, what was done to me was wrong because Mm -hmm. it's always wrong. And the whole situation is just very overwhelming and disorienting for her. Yeah. And I think, like, without getting into too much detail, like, I will say that a part that I really resonated with with Annabelle in this book, and again, like, unfortunately, I think all too many people can relate to is, like, this sort of slower understanding of something traumatic that happened to you, especially, like, this kind of trauma. Like, it it took me years, honestly, to come to terms with the severity of a situation that I was in once when I was Mm -hmm. younger, because I think in the moment you explain it away as like, Oh no, like it got a little weird, but it was fine. Like I handled it. And then years later, you're like, Oh no, that's like, there's a different name for what happened. Yeah. There's a different name for what happened. And I need to figure out how to put a name to that. And, and we see Annabelle figure that out over the course of the book and she figures out how to communicate about it. But that's what, broke her and Sophie up because Sophie walked in on what was going on. And of course, immediately believed Will rather than Sophie. She assumes because of her relationship with Will that like Will would never do that with her best friend when in fact, Will is assaulting Annabelle. A serial rapist. Like it's an ongoing issue in the book. You know, I think to your point, tying this in with Owen's like purpose in the book really is that we don't always have the language to describe the things that happen to us or the harms that are committed against us. And so, you know, I think we use the language that we have to square our memories of a scenario. You know, I was talking to a friend about this the other day, you know, similarly to you, like all these, you know, a number of situations that I was in in college that at the time I was like, oh, this is just like crazy college stuff. This is just what happens to people in college. And it's like, No, it's not just things that happen to people in college. Like if you have not been given the tools to one, own your anger or own your rage or own your hurt, then you, of course, are going to use the tools that you do have to try and make sense of them. And for a lot of young women in particular, that looks like, well, this was my fault because, you know, it's a lot of internalized. I let it get too far. Yeah, yeah. It's like a lot of internalized guilt. And so 
And obviously like those things are projected onto to young women from a very early age, you know, like every harm that happens to you is because you did not take the proper precautions, which we know is untrue. And so one of the things that Owen serves to do in the book too, you know, like you mentioned earlier, is like Owen has the ability to teach her for the first time in her life that like, no, like when people fuck you over, it's okay to be angry about it. It's okay to address it. It's okay to confront it. And so that's such a crucial part of her ability to sort of claim what happened to her and push back on this narrative that Sophie has shaped around uh, that incident. Yeah. And another crucial part is the opportunity that she has to realize that she's not alone. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I keep saying, unfortunately, like this is all too real for people. But I, yeah. I think that this part is very true to life and that unfortunately it often takes somebody else telling you the same thing happened to me for you to be able to reflect on something and realize how wrong it was and that you deserve to be angry and that you should feel empowered to pursue justice and revenge or whatever that looks like for you. And in this case, it looks like Annabelle's former friend, I think it was Emily, a former model. I forget what Mm -hmm. her name was, but it might've been Emily. Yeah, She finds out that Emily had the exact same experience with Will. And later on, Emily lets her know that she is seeking representation and and they want to charge Will with rape. Mm -hmm. And I I like the fact that like we see these two girls coming together, like they're not friends. They're probably not going to be friends again, but they're still able to like come together and figure out how to like exercise their power and speak out. And I wish that we'd seen more of the scenes where Annabelle like tells her parents the truth and really like speaks out about what happened to her because so much of the book is about her being quiet. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad that we got there in the end and that she did feel empowered to do that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, this, this came like what, like 15 years before the Me Too movement kicked off. Yeah. And so like, the thing we saw with Me Too is that it was one person speaking up, and then another person being like, that same thing happened to me. And then another person saying, oh, that same thing happened to me. And then before we knew it, there were hundreds of thousands of people all over the globe who were like, I feel empowered enough to be honest now about this thing that happened to me because I'm not alone anymore. And that like, that sense of, that sense of community, like how, how are we joined together in, in the things that have been done to us or the things that have happened to us is like often what galvanizes entire movements. And so like, it's crucial. I think that like, you know, there are ways that she could have, of course, like wrapped this book up with no, no Emily character, no other assaults that happen. And like, you know, Will fades into the, into the dark and we never have to see or hear from him again. But like, this is, this is to me, maybe the most important element that draws from real life, which is that like, so many of us need to be told by other people who have been where we are, that it wasn't our fault and we're not by ourselves and you know we can fight this if we fight it together and so yeah I think it's just such a significant moment and I just really I have to commend the OG because this really like this does so much work that like I hadn't seen done in YA or teen fiction as as it was called at the time and so like damn like that's like that's really heavy shit 
It is heavy shit. And that's how I felt when I finished reading because even like other Sarah Dessen books, again, we recently covered the truth about forever. Like there's heavy stuff in that, but like nowhere near the gravity of just listen. Like this is really intense subject matter. On the whole, Leah, what was the experience of coming back to just listen like for you? I think I know how you're going to answer it, but did it meet your expectations? Did it exceed them? Was there anything that you felt like, oh, you know, if I were writing a similar story now, maybe this would be different. Or if Sarah Dessen, the OG, was writing this story now that like she might revisit or, or the publishing world might expect differently? Yeah. Um, well, first and foremost, I feel like Sarah Dessen's books, especially her early books, exist in like a, a raceless universe. Like there's just like, yeah. they're completely deracinated. And part of me feels like, an obligation to say because you know blackness is such a huge part of my books it's integral to who my characters are like we we need less white people like we need less white people immediately immediately but also like there are just craft things like not to get too in the weeds on this there are just craft things that sarah desson does that i personally don't think that i could accomplish and i've spent i spent so many years trying to like write myself into being like the black queer Sarah Desson. But like, it's just not, I just, I don't, I can't do it. I can't do some of this stuff. Like she'll have a memory within a memory within a memory where she like takes you from the present moment. She'll, you'll be in the present moment for one paragraph and then she'll take you back four years and then she'll take you back two years and then she'll take you back four years again. It's just the, she's, it's hard. It's, really difficult to do is really difficult to imitate but it is so to me masterfully done and I just I think she's really I think she really has such a talent and like it's evidenced by the fact that she's been around for such a long time she really knows this shit you know what I mean and this is the other thing too I meant to mention this earlier I can't remember what the first book was that she wrote I think it was it might have been that summer maybe it was someone I think it was Yeah. She has said in interviews before that like she didn't write that book as YA. She wrote it just as a book and she thought it was a book for adults, actually. And then her agent was like, it's actually teen fiction. Let's like categorize it that way. And I just really I get the sense that Sarah Dessen expected her readers to meet her where she was and not the other way around. You know, like sometimes people write for young people and they write down to them. They try to be hip and cool and like "Mm, that and that. Yeah. I'm doing like a <laughs> y'all bing bing boom. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all can't yeah. see me, but I'm doing like a how do you do yeah, fellow like a, kids? Like a cool guy dance. Right, right. And I just I really appreciated that in her especially in her early work. Like she yeah. is so serious about like respecting not just the craft of like writing, but also writing about young people and not ever speaking down to them. And so rereading this book, I'm like that remains as true now as it did when I read it for the first time when I was in middle school. But yeah, in general, it's a long ass book. I'm like shocked that Sarah Dessen writes books this long consistently. Like they're so fucking dense. How do you do it, girl? I know why you did it. I know you needed to do it, but I I can't relate. This is a smooth 85, 90,000 words. Like it's just, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. I will say to your point about the whiteness of Sarah Dessen's world, Netflix is adapting a bunch of her books and I'm anxious to see how they recontextualize these worlds. And I'm hopeful that they'll bring in some different actors and and offer uh, a bit more or a lot more representation than we got 
in the original books because there's it's yeah. just Clark is the only character whose race is like even hinted at in this book mm-hmm. and it's not even like very clear it's weird right well and then it's like so in the movie like in along for the ride the movie like I watched it and I yeah I haven't watched it yet okay I feel like well we could talk about it off mic but I will say like there are some changes that they made to the the movie version that I was like okay, like, I can see you all are trying to, like, update this story in X, Y, and Z types of ways. Like, they cast Laura Kariuki, who's, like, from Black Lightning, in one of the, in one of the friend roles. And I was like, you can't just, like, put a Black person in a white role and be like, yes, we're diverse. Because it's like, there's nothing specifically about her that would suggest that she is black like it's which is not true like there are ways that she would move through the world that are different than the white character who was initially in that position so you know they're trying they're trying it's a little clumsy but um I do appreciate the uh the effort and I will say in whatever book Sarah Dessen did last I think it was um the rest of the story I did notice more diversity in that and I was like okay she's listening she's listening I mean, we can't she go hears back. Us. She's hearing us. We can't go back and change the first fourteen years of her career, but at least now, <laughs> it only yeah. took me. It only took me uh, twenty years of being a fan of hers, but it, we got there. She heard you. Well, we'll stay tuned to see how the other <laughs> books are adapted, other than just listen by your BFF Sarah Dessen, Leah Johnson. Sarah, I'm call me. Refer to you as I'm going to just refer to you as Leah Johnson for Please, the rest of this you. conversation. <laughs> Leah Johnson, what else have you been reading lately that you want to share with our listeners? Oh, the book wreck moment. My time to shine. We're here. Okay. We've arrived. I was going to hold it up. We're not on camera, so it doesn't really matter. I'm going to recommend Kings of Beemore by R. Eric Thomas. It is a book about two friends who have like a Ferris Bueller type of day full of adventures. It's about black boyhood. It's about queerness it's about the power of friendship which is like so hokey but it is about the power of friendship and it's beautiful it's it's just beautiful and it's in third person i very rarely like books in third person unless it's sarah Dessen, but our eric oh interesting you know he 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 did it my other recommendation is going to be xyla and kai by christina forrest which is out well now when you all are listening to it it will have been out for like three weeks i think christina is just such a scholar of romance and you can tell because she pours that into every book she writes like just such a such a grasp of like the craft of what a romance is supposed to be beat for beat I really really love this book it's sweet it's a little sad it's just pitch perfect um everybody read it and my last recommendation is going to be The Counselors by Jessica Goodman it is a thriller jessica goodman that's my girl i don't even read thrillers it's not my bag but like i will read about people getting murdered if jess is writing it because they are so so good this one takes place at a summer camp called camp alpine lake and it is just as like creepy and fast-paced and spooky as you would expect it to be so yeah, check out The Counselors. It's out now. All these books are out now, actually. Yeah. It's always weird because I recommend books that never, like, because I read everything so far in advance because I usually am reading for blurbs. But luckily, June is when all the all the books finally drop, so. 
Yeah, June's a good month. Fun fact, Jessica Goodman and I have been in a wedding together. We share a mutual best friend. Oh my gosh! And uh, yeah, she's a friend of the show. She's been on the podcast a couple of times. And I know, she's great. Well, I will include links to The Counselors along with the other two books that you recommended in the show notes for this episode. Now, Leah Johnson, I know you said that you are trying to be the Black queer Sarah Dessen, but don't sell yourself short because you have quite a writing career already of your own. We are big fans of yours around here. Leah Johnson, what can you tell us about anything that you have coming up or about the books you already have out there? What do you want to plug today or what, what kind of inside scoop can we get from you? Yeah. So, well, first of all, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. And second, let's see. I'm in an anthology called Out There. It's all queer short stories set in the near and distant future. My story in it is about two girls at the end of the world who believe that finally they get to live in a world without prejudice because they're the only two people left and then they discover maybe they're not as alone as they thought they were it's really good i'm not gonna lie and sounds good thank you and next year spring 2023 i have my first middle grade book coming out it's the first of a series it's called ellie ingle saves herself it's about a girl who is exceedingly ordinary until she goes to bed there's an earthquake and she wakes up the next morning with the ability to bring things back to life with her touch. It's a series of books about ordinary kids with extraordinary gifts. And um, I'm really, really excited about it being out in the world. I'm working on my second one in the series now, which I can't say much about because frankly, I don't know much about it, but uh, (laughs) when I do, I'll let you guys know. So cool. Well, maybe we can get you to come back on next spring when the middle grade book is out and we can talk about some other Sarah Dustin book or maybe we can do some, I don't know, Megan McCafferty or Meg Cabot. The the options are limitless, but congratulations on the new series and on the anthology. I'll make sure listeners have access to all of your novels and all of your great work. Thank you so much, Leah Johnson, for taking the time to talk with me about Sarah Dustin. It has been so fun and I can't think of a better way to celebrate 200 episodes. Congratulations. I'm so, so happy to have been the the 200th episode guest. I feel very honored. So thank you for having me. Thanks, Leah. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.